A few weeks ago, I heard an interview with an author about his high school baseball career. Now, he is not, nor ever has been, a professional athlete. He didn't even play sports in college. But he credits his high school baseball coach with his success in life. It was during a summer league game, a championship game no less, when Michael became an unlikely hero. It was the bottom of the seventh inning, and the coach made one too many trips to the mound, which meant he had to remove the team's star pitcher. So he turned to Michael, all of 16 years old, and told him to warm up. Michael was terrified. There were runners on first and third. They were up two to one, but there was just one out in the inning. And when he was warmed up, he went out to the mound, and the coach handed him the ball and said, Michael, there is no one I would rather have in this position than you. Then he nodded over at the runner on third base and whispered to him, pick him off. And that's exactly what Michael did. And then he went on to retire the final four batters, and the game was over. The team won, and at least for that day, he was the hero. It was only later that Michael realized that this had been the defining moment of his life. Because when his coach handed him the baseball and expressed confidence in him that he would be able to perform, he was telling the whole team that Michael was somebody who could be trusted in the clutch. That in pressure situations, he was someone the coach wanted to have the ball. It was, Michael said, completely implausible, a sheer invention, but it worked. Michael said the effect on his life was transformational. From that point on, he tried to be that person. His behavior changed. He started to study harder, and everyone started to take him more seriously. That fall, the headmaster of the school called Michael into his office. He said, Coach speaks well of you, Michael. You know, we're expecting more from you. To a 16-year-old former slacker, it was a big moment, a turning point, really. Something his coach did to give him a vision for what he could be, that gave him the confidence to try things he would not have tried otherwise. Michael would go on to Princeton University, and now is a successful writer. He wrote about this experience more than 20 years later, saying that to this day, whenever he finds himself in pressure situations, he hears his coach's voice in his, in his ear, finding the courage to keep going, to aspire to higher standards, and to try even when things are really hard. We're in a series based on the life and teachings of St. Paul. Paul had a difficult life, which meant that he has credibility when he speaks to us. And one of the things Paul talks often about is how we can grow in the midst of hardship. A few weeks ago, we spent time looking at Paul's confidence in God over several different weeks, that whatever we face, God will be there for us. And for the last couple of weeks, we've looked at his deep conviction that we can grow to be stronger, better people if we face up to the hardships in our life. And what we're going to talk about this week is confidence. That just as Michael's high school baseball coach expressed confidence in his ability to perform, this 16-year-old third-string pitcher, so does Paul express confidence that in the midst of our difficulties, God is doing something and will continue to do something good in our lives. Paul expresses this idea twice in the book of Philippians. In chapter 1, verse 3, he starts by saying, I thank my God every time I remember you. And then he moves on to the important part in verse 6 when he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He then returns to the theme again of chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, 
not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now rather than take these two texts individually, I want to draw out a few key ideas that are found in both of these places. And the first idea is that the goal of our spiritual lives is transformation. The goal is transformation. In chapter 1, verse 6, Paul calls this God's good work. And in chapter 2, 13, he calls it God's good purpose. The idea here is that God is about making us better, more mature people. That he has a plan for our lives, a higher standard he wants us to live up to. And what he wants for us is, by the way, also in our best interest. But to pursue this will mean that we need to change. For anyone who chooses to follow Jesus, spiritual growth is expected, not optional. We don't get to choose how much Jesus we want in our lives, whether we want to pursue the silver or gold or the elite platinum level. That's what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12, when he says, Dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul doesn't want us to stop halfway, to be satisfied with anything less than the total benefits of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Spiritual growth isn't optional, but it is in our best interest. The second idea that Paul has is that spiritual growth is a process, not an event. It's a process, not an event. In chapter 2, verse 12, Paul tells them to continue to work out their salvation. Then in verse 13, he says that God works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We live in an instant culture. Instant coffee, minute rice, minute clinics, microwave popcorn. And we're impatient people, much like children on a vacation who are constantly asking, are we there yet? But Paul makes it clear that spiritual growth has a beginning, a process that begins, what he says in chapter 1, verse 6, when God began a good work in you, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, and what he did for us on the cross, his death, his burial, and, the resur and resurrection. But spiritual growth also has a middle, which is why in chapter 2, verse 12, he says that we are continue to, to continue to work out our salvation. And it also has an end, which is what he says in chapter 1, verse 6, when he says this process will continue until Jesus Christ returns. As long as we're here on earth, we are in process. That means there's still work to be done. But understand that God also says that he will begin what he's begun, he will carry on to completion. That means he will finish what he starts. When I was in college, this idea that the Christian life, the spiritual life was a process, frustrated me. I was impatient. I wanted to get from A to Z spiritually as quickly as possible. I remember writing my dad about it in the days before uh, we had cell phones and email. And so I wrote him a letter and asked him how it was that I could speed up the process. He wrote back and told me to calm down. He said, be patient. Get up each day and commit once again to follow Jesus. And every once in a while, look back and reflect on the progress that you've made. He warned me that I probably wouldn't see progress every day or even every week, but after a few months, maybe six months or a year, I should be able to look back and see ways that I had become more patient and loving and more self-controlled. He said, thank God for the good work that he's doing in your life. And at the same time, with humility, realize how far you still have to go. 
What Paul describes is a process that will continue as long as we are here on earth. Until we go to be with Jesus or he returns. And he says, keep up the good work. Let God do in your life what he intends to do. Now, it's not easy. Spiritual growth is hard work. Sometimes it feels like we take two steps forward and one step back, and sometimes it's just a step forward and a step back in another way. We all have bad habits and dysfunctional patterns that are very difficult to change. And sometimes it feels like the change that's needed most is so hard that it's not even worth the bother. But even if it's hard, don't give up. Don't be complacent and say, that's just who I am. Because if what you are is a jerk, that is simply not acceptable. It's not okay. Gossip, greed, lust, and anger need to be rooted out. But just because change is hard don't, doesn't mean that it's optional. Take hope. Spiritual growth is a process. God knows that. But I also believe that he's patient with us if we begin to take steps toward growth. The final idea that Paul has is that spiritual growth is a joint project between us and God. It's a joint project between us and between God. God has a big part, but we have a crucial part as well. Here's the tension. The question is, is whether salvation is something that God does or we do. So in one verse, chapter 1, verse 6, it says that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished. Likewise, in chapter 2, verse 13, he says God is working in you to do what pleases him. So if you just look at that, it makes it sound like God. It all depends on him, doesn't it? But then in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which makes it seem like it all depends upon us. That leads some to become Navy SEAL Christians. They make the spiritual life all about discipline and commitment. They decide that they are going to try to outwork everyone else by doing things like memorizing a verse of the Bible a day or trying to build up a long stretch of days of consecutive Bible reading, sort of like factories that track consecutive accident-free work days. That leaves us with the question then, is it God or is it us? And the answer is, it's both of us. Salvation is not something we can accomplish on our own. It comes by faith, by God's grace, because of what Jesus has done for us. To grow spiritually, we also desperately need God's help. And yet at the same time, without our cooperation, God can't do anything. So God works, then we work. And only then can God fulfill his purposes in our lives. Now here's an illustration. It's not original with me, but I think it helps us see how to hold these two ideas in balance. If spiritual growth was only up to God, we'd be like life rafts in a hurricane. We'd be blown and tossed and driven every which way, powerless to go in a particular direction unless God pushed us in that way. But if it's only up to us, we're like motorboats, where we're in control. We can decide where we're going and how fast we want to get there. But neither of those metaphors describes what spiritual growth is really like. You see, it is up to us and to God. And if so, then it's more like a sailboat. We're not passive like the life raft because we can hoist the sails or stir the, steer the rudder. But at the same time, we are utterly dependent upon the wind. If the wind doesn't blow, we're dead in the water. So here's the question that you need to ask today. What is God doing in your life right now? And how can you cooperate with him to see God bring about the growth that he intends for you to have in your life? 
Paul says he's confident that God, the one who began this good work within us, will continue what I'm, he started. He says, I'm sure of it. So how do we know that we're making progress? How do we know that we're moving along the way? Many of you know that the purpose statement here at City Church is to love God and love others. And that actually can be a test of spiritual growth. Are we growing in love for God, wanting to please him and finding joy in him? And likewise, are we growing in our love for others, love for those in the church and those in our city? That's the test of whether or not we're continuing to grow. One of my father's best friends is an ex-con, and it's a long story how they became friends. But for years, my dad mentored Jim, although he's an impressive person, and my father would certainly not take credit for all he's become. But the short version of Jim's story is that he spent the bulk of his adult life in and out of prison. He drank too much and was constantly in trouble. And then he became a Christian. Now, if you think that Jim was suddenly transformed into a model citizen, think again, because for years, Jim had his highs and he had his lows. Jim had a wife and son here in Minneapolis, and after he got into trouble one more time, he hit bottom, and he ended up at the Stillwater prison. He'd failed yet again. He'd failed his wife. He'd failed his son. He had everything going for him, and then he had blown it. He was completely ashamed and didn't feel he could face God. He didn't even try to pray. One day, he saw a Bible on the book cart that was making its rounds in the prison. And uh, he just looked at it for a moment and then thought, I, I can't pick that up. Every day, the cart would go by, and he'd see the Bible again. And then one day, impulsively, he reached out quickly, and he grabbed the Bible. And when he opened it up, he opened it up to Philippians 1.6 being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And Jim was stunned. He felt like God was talking directly to him. Sure, he felt like God was saying to him, you've screwed up. But if you think you're hopeless, you don't know me very well. You see, I've started something in you, and I'm going to continue it until the day Jesus returns. At that moment, Jim felt like God was saying to him, don't give up. Quit beating yourself up. I know you feel unworthy, but that's the reason I died for you. And I'm not finished with you yet. And God isn't finished with you yet either. Some of life's hardships happen to us, and others we bring on ourselves. The first make us sometimes angry at God. The others angry at ourselves. Paul wants us to know that when we've blown it, the last thing God wants us to do is to give up. Instead, we need to let God finish the good work that he has started in our lives. Amen.